Hi everyone! As I'm sure many of you realized, this episode is coming out a week late. That's because, like many other podcasters within the community, I decided to take part in the podcast blackout in honor of George Floyd and the many other Black men and women who have been killed by police officers within the United States and abroad. As a white woman, I've become more and more aware of my privilege in the last few years, but really in the last few weeks, and taking part in the blackout was really the least I could do. Moving forward, I am going to return to my usual weekly schedule of uploads, but I also am going to commit much more fully to covering the stories of people of color within my podcast. I've been doing Sad Girl Study Guides for about a year, and I've only covered really one person of color's story within the podcast, which, frankly, I'm ashamed of, so I wanted to let everyone know that that's something I'm going to be working on moving forward. Anyways, here is the episode I was planning on releasing on Madame de Pompadour. Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. This week was kind of a tough week, not just for me, but kind of for the United States and probably the world as well. While most of the United States was getting ready to start winding down some of the COVID distancing, which in my opinion is a mistake, how we learned nothing from the 1918 flu pandemic people. George Lloyd was murdered on May 25th, and I really do think murdered is the only word appropriate for what happened to him. And people began to protest, quite rightly, I think, because he's only the last man in a long, long, long list of African Americans to be killed by police officers who are supposed to protect and serve the citizens of the United States, but usually don't do that. And yeah, I do think it's wrong that police are protecting and often murdering citizens and not being punished for it. That opinion of mine might be controversial, but that's how I feel. I personally did not join in the protests in the city I'm living in right now, Chicago, mostly because it was my birthday over the weekend and I was celebrating my birthday, but also because this city stopped all public transit from the neighborhood I live in to downtown Chicago, where the protests were taking place, which made it pretty much impossible to get to the protests. Hmm, I wonder why they would do that. So yeah, the world is kind of a grim place right now. I'm still grappling with all of that. I'm sure most of my listeners are grappling with all of that. If you are a person of color who listens to this podcast, I'm thinking of you. I know it's such a crazy and difficult time right now. I'm really aware of that. And what's been going on this weekend made me stop and think and realize that basically I only cover 
white people in this podcast, which is pretty shitty of me. So moving forward, once I finish this particular series, which is going to be next week, I'm going to make a much more concerted effort to cover people of color on this podcast. That is going to be my goal for the next year of Sad Girl Study Guides. Moving on. Given how tough the last few months, but specifically the last week, has been, I really do want this podcast to not only be a place of education, but also a place of entertainment and joy, despite the title, Sad Girl Study Guides. And I really hope that this particular episode does bring some joy into people's lives. It is going to be discussing the life of Madame du Pompadour, who was Louis XV's favorite mistress and who was a cultural icon and quite the savvy political player in her own right. Her study guide has a super romantic dead deer, some questionable paternity, and a dramatic unmasking. Let's begin. The future Madame de Pompadour was born December 29th, 1721 in Paris, France. Her birth name was Jeanne Antoinette Poisson. Her legal parents were Francois Poisson and Madeleine de la Motte. However, Francois probably wasn't her biological father. Instead, her biological father probably was one of her father's colleagues, a wealthy tax collector, Lenormand de Turnham. But the man who was named her father on her birth certificate, Francois Poisson, was a financier who dabbled in speculation and was constantly on the verge of making it big and getting his family to move up the class hierarchy. However, in 1725, Francois got caught up in a financial scandal, suddenly owed a ton of people a ton of debts that he aggressively could not pay and had to flee France. Madeleine, Jean, and Jean's younger siblings, the number of whom and gender of whom varies depending on what source you read, moved in with de Turnham, which made everyone even more convinced that he was Jean's dad slash her mother's lover. De Turnham was fairly wealthy and ensured that Jean and her younger siblings got a fantastic education. Initially, he sent her to a convent school because that's what happens if you're a well-off girl, but Jean didn't have the best health, so she returned from the convent school at the age of nine years old and was mostly educated at home by a series of fantastic private tutors. Soon after returning from the convent school when she was nine, Jean's mother met with a fortune teller who predicted that Jean would win the heart of a king and become his mistress. And Jean's mother, Madeline, was utterly convinced that was going to happen. From that moment forward, Jean started going by the nickname Renette, or Little Queen. And her mother basically started raising Jean to one day be the king's mistress. Even though at that moment, such a thing seemed pretty unlikely because traditionally 
only the highest members of nobility were chosen to be the king's mistress, and Jean didn't even come from a noble family. For the rest of Jean's childhood, she continued getting a great education, specifically in literature and the arts. In 1740, Jean got married to de Tournheim's nephew, Charles Guillaume Lenormand de Toile. She was 19 and he was 23 at the time of the marriage, and the two seemed to get along fairly well. After the two got married, de Tournheim made Charles his official heir and gave the two of them a private estate, which just so happened to be very close to Louis XV's favorite hunting spot as a nice little wedding gift. The fact that he made Charles his official and only heir and gave them a beautiful estate really showed how much he cared about Jean and how much he wanted her to socially succeed. Jean and Charles had two children together, a son, also named Charles, who was born in 1741 and died a year later, and a daughter, Alexandrine, who was born in 1744 and lived until she was nine years old. When she was married to Charles, Jean really started to enter Parisian literary society. Charles went to a lot of the various salons in Paris and very quickly started taking his wife to them. Through that, she started meeting various Enlightenment figures and got a reputation for being extremely clever and a great conversationalist. Through this, Jean ended up starting a very popular salon of her own at her husband's estate. By 1741, due to the reputation of her own salon, Jean's name starts to be mentioned at Versailles, and Louis XV starts to hear about her and becomes interested in the wife of the wealthy financial man who has the amazing salon. Because her estate is so close to his favorite hunting spot, thanks to the genius of her maybe possible father, Louis XV allows Jean to watch him and his friends hunt from afar, which is a huge deal for a non-noble under the strict etiquette of Versailles. However, Jean remembers the fortune teller of her childhood and decides that this is a great opportunity to get the king's attention. During one hunt, she completely breaks society's rules and rides out directly in front of the king and his group in one of her carriages, not once, but twice. It works. Instead of being furious at Jean for breaking all of the rules, the king is utterly fascinated and ends up sending her the very romantic gift of venison that he himself had caught during the hunt. A few months later, in December 1744, Louis's current mistress, Marianne de Miley, who we talked about last week, died unexpectedly, which means Louis is suddenly on the hunt for a new mistress. Soon after Marie Anne's death, Louis holds a masked ball to celebrate his son's engagement to Maria Theresa of Spain, and Jean and her husband are invited to the ball even though, remember, they're not actually nobles. 
at the height of the ball. Louis very publicly and very dramatically pulls off his mask and announces that he is interested in Jean de Etoile, which is a big fucking deal, and not only because Louis XV does it in a very dramatic and public fashion. However, despite the king's interest in her, Jean doesn't quite meet the standard to be a royal mistress. While she is married, which one does have to be in order to be a royal mistress, she does not have a noble title, which is a big no-no. To solve this issue, Louis just straight up buys her the title of Marquess and makes her the Marquess de Pompadour, hence her name, Madame de Pompadour. By September 1745, she is introduced to Versailles as the king's official mistress. And according to all the historical accounts, her husband seems fairly okay about this turn of events because Charles did genuinely love her. And besides, having your wife be the king's mistress means that you and your family are going to get a shit ton of land and money. Once at Versailles, Louis immediately gives Jean her own private apartments, which is also a huge deal. Usually, it takes a mistress quite a while to get a space of her own, and Jean has it right away. As the king's mistress, Jean decides that her first order of business is not to get an amazing wardrobe, lavish jewels, a giant allowance. No, she is more practical than that. She starts by making nice with Louis's family, especially his wife, Marie. Basically, Jean is going to be the first of Louis's many mistresses to actively be nice to the Queen of France and have a good working relationship with her. In response, Marie says, if there must be a mistress, and you know, there must be a mistress, better her than any other. And as a result, as Louis's mistress, Madame de Pompadour is going to be extremely involved at all levels of court and will have a massive impact on both French arts and French society. Jean pretty quickly became a huge patron of the arts. She was pretty clever in how she did this. She used the art she commissioned to create various political messages. Specifically, she commissioned portraits of herself that showed her in a positive light, as well as portraits that supported Louis and his policies, and most of the art that she liked tended to be in the Rococo style, aka it was simultaneously very ornate and very delicate at the same time. She particularly liked the art of one Francois Boucher, who I will be talking about in the tangent cast for this week. She also developed a genuine interest in engraving and got private lessons in how to do it from Boucher and another artist, Jacques Guay, and ended up producing some engraved works of her own. Jeanne also used her interest in the arts to create jobs. In 1759, she bought a porcelain factory to bring fine arts jobs to France, and said factory became one of the most famous producers of porcelain in all of Europe. She also bought a drilling machine to her apartment in Versailles so that she could hire in-house gem carvers who she then taught who 
who she then had teach her how to carve her own gems, and she then had those gem carvers teach other people how to carve gems so that there could be more gem carvers at the court. Madame de Pompadour also became a pretty large style icon in France. Her habit of brushing her hair straight back instead of to the side quickly became iconic. The Pompadour is named after her, after all, and the Pompadour has lived on through the centuries thanks to one Elvis Presley. In addition to completely changing French hairstyles, Madame de Pompadour was also responsible for adding the gardens and the zoo to the Grand Trianon. She was really focused on making sure there was a more rustic feel to the Grand Trianon so that Louis XV could feel more relaxed when he was not at the main palace of Versailles. But while all of these arts and style changes were really exciting and quite beautiful, they all tended to be very expensive and caused people at court to say that her taste was way too over the top, even by the very elaborate standards of Versailles, as well as to say that she had a very tacky style because, you know, she was a member of the merchant class and the bourgeoisie are always so tacky. However, despite these petty mumbles from the nobility, Jean really did have great taste, especially when it came to fashion. She was the one who introduced patterned cotton and calico to French fashion, so whenever you see a portrait of an 18th century French woman in a beautiful patterned dress, you can thank the Madame de Pompadour for that. But Jean wasn't just a style icon. She also had some real book smarts. Remember how she had first been noticed by the king thanks to the salon she had run? Well, she brought that to Versailles as well. Jean quickly became a huge supporter of various Enlightenment thinkers, especially Voltaire and Denis Diderot. During her time at Versailles, she acted as Voltaire's patron, which was great for him in his writing, except for the time when he wrote a poem about her sexual relationship with Louis XV and allowed him to publicly distribute it among the court, which briefly got him kicked out of Versailles, and also for the fact that Voltaire and Louis XV just generally did not get along at all because Voltaire did not know how to play nice with other people. But besides those two little facts, having the king's official mistress as Voltaire's patron, very helpful for him. Also, her friendship with Diderot was excellent. When Diderot's encyclopedia first got published, it was attacked by basically everyone for being anti-church and anti-monarchy, but Jean defended it for being a really important piece of writing and helped ensure its continued publication. More generally, she really pushed for extended protections for printers and writers, which would help French literature further develop. While all of this didn't really change French political thought or French society more generally at the moment, it would have a really big impact about mm, 40 years later 
1789 and kicking off a little event known as the French Revolution. In addition to her love for the Enlightenment, Jean also pushed for new types of scientific and economic thought and research, specifically the new field of physiocracy, which combined economic theory with agriculture to ensure that France was able to use its land more productively to plant and grow more food and make more money that way, which is always good if you are an agriculturally based economy, which France was in the 1740s. However, by 1750, only five years into being Louis' mistress, Jean technically stepped down as Louis' mistress because of really poor health. Since the time she had started sleeping with the king, she had been suffering from bronchitis, severe migraines, as well as a string of miscarriages. By now, her health was so bad that Jean was only able to sleep with the help of multiple drugs. Even though she and Louis weren't having sex after 1750, she still had a ton of influence at Versailles and within French politics. In fact, Jean may have had more influence without having sex with the king because she no longer had to worry about Louis losing interest in her and her body. A sign of this influence was the fact that even though she wasn't his official mistress anymore, Louis didn't take any mistresses while she was alive. He just took a series of short-term lovers and didn't even let them live at Versailles. He just kept them in a little chateau several miles away. Also, as soon as she and Louis ended their sexual relationship, her friendship, her relationship with his children massively improved. While Jean had been his official mistress, Louis's children felt like she was trying to split their parents up, even though Jean was nothing but friendly with Marie and Louis had been sleeping with other women for quite a while by the time he met Jean, but once she was only his close female friend and no longer sleeping with him, all of Louis's children became very close to Jean and by all accounts pretty much adored her. But while Jean became very close to Louis's children, by the time she was no longer his mistress, she wasn't exactly popular with the rest of the population of Versailles. Most of the nobility felt like she had way too much influence over the king, especially because one, she wasn't a woman, and two, probably more importantly, she wasn't from a noble family. Also, by the time she stepped down as his mistress, things weren't going quite as smoothly at court. Pretty soon, Jean got accused of selling influence to people who had no idea what they were doing, which was why things were going so badly. And the reason why Jean supposedly was selling these influences was because she was a greedy member of the bourgeoisie who just had to make money at any cost, even if it destroyed French society writ large. Most of the people spreading these rumors were men who had traditionally been close to the king, but felt like they had been pushed out or the king 
wasn't listening to them anymore, such as his minister of the Navy or the Secretary of State. Most of the negative rumors swirling around Jean were regarding her health. She was accused of having a ton of STIs or the 18th century version of cervical cancer, etc., etc. And let's be honest, if Jean did have any STIs, she almost certainly got them from the king because he had many more sexual partners than she did. As far as we know, she only had two sexual partners, Louis and her husband, while the king had many, many mistresses. So let's ponder that double standard for a fun second. Even though Jane's reputation was taking a bit of a nosedive, she did still continue to have a lot of influence at court and a lot of political influence. In 1752, Louis promoted her to the position of Duchess, which made a lot of people very mad because Duchesses were usually a hereditary title, and Louis just gave it to her. And he also gave her the privilege of sitting with the royal family at public events and basically getting to be treated like a princess of the blood, which Jean most certainly was not. However, when she was done being Louis's official mistress, Jean started to really dip her toe into politics, because as it turned out, she had some diplomatic skills. She was very subtle and good at listening and winning people over to her side. She became Louis's mistress right at the end of the War of Austrian Succession, which we did discuss at the end of the De Miley episode, but in case you forgot, the War of Austrian Succession started when Prussia, who was allied with France, took over the province of Silesia from Austria, which was ruled over by their new queen, Maria Theresa. By taking over Silesia, Prussia threatened Austrian sovereignty, and the two countries went to war, which theoretically is great for France because Austria is one of France's ancient enemies. Even though, and France quickly jumped into the war on the Prussian side. However, the War of Austrian Succession didn't go super great for France because they kept losing all their battles against Austria. Despite this, Prussia did manage to keep hold of Silesia. Meanwhile, France and England, who was on Austria's side, also began fighting each other and started using the War of Austrian Succession as a way to fight over who will become the big colonial power in Europe. The war ended up ending in 1748 with the Treaty of La Chapelle, which gave France basically nothing on the continent, did not resolve any of the colonial drama between England and France, and forced France into a tighter alliance with Prussia. And yes, 1748 is right in the middle of Jean's term as Louis's mistress. By 1748, Louis was sort of over the whole being allies with Prussia thing, especially because the king of Prussia, Frederick II, had a habit of being a massive jerk towards Jean. He referred to her as Petticoats III. Petticoats I and II were Elizabeth of Russia and Maria Theresa of 
Austria, respectively. Frederick II also mockingly called his dog Pompadour, aka was kind of referring to Madame de Pompadour as a bitch, which is problematic on a whole other level. By 1755, Louis was pretty much fed up with the Prussian alliance, and the Queen of Austria, Maria Theresa, had been wanting to isolate Prussia from France since about 1740. There was just the tiny little problem of the fact that foreign diplomats weren't allowed to meet one-on-one -on -one with the king in Versailles and instead had to meet with one of the king's advisors, and all of Louis's main military advisors were extremely pro-Prussian and wouldn't listen to an Austrian diplomat anyways. So, Maria Theresa, who isn't an idiot, decided to have one of her diplomats arrange a private meeting with Jean, because everyone knows Jean, even though she isn't the king's mistress anymore, does have the king's ear. And the Austrian diplomat meets with Jean, and Jean isn't the biggest fan of Prussia, and she quickly agrees that, yeah, a Franco-Austrian alliance would be pretty nice. And since Jean has so much influence over Louis, he also eventually agrees. In 1756, in what's known as the Reversal of Alliances, Louis ends up signing a peace treaty with Austria, and the two countries agree that they're going to ally from here on out. This reveal is hugely unpopular in France, because Austria had been a traditional enemy of France, and everyone blames Jean for this new order. Of course. Except, as it turns out, it wouldn't have even mattered if Jean had been involved or not, because while the reversal of alliances and the secret meetings were going on, Prussia had double-crossed France by signing a secret treaty with France's traditional enemy, England. So now we have France and Austria together, and Prussia and England together, which forms the alliances for the next war that France is going to jump into, the Seven Years' War. So let's talk about the Seven Years' War. And as always, this is going to be fairly surface level. You know me. I don't really like my military history. I'm sure there are podcasts that really dive in to the nitty-gritty battle-by-battle fighting of the Seven Years' War, but this girl, she ain't it. By the 1750s, England and France, who are major rivals, are both starting to expand their colonial holdings, especially in the Caribbean, in Canada, around the Ohio River Valley, in North America, and in India. By 1755, things are getting pretty tense in said colonial holdings. And then three French ships in the Canada region accidentally run in to an English convoy and after miscommunication get attacked by the English ships, which causes a ton of drama at the French court and really pushes France into wanting a war with England. While all that is going on, tensions between Austria and Prussia begin heating up once again. One thing leads to another. Austria and Prussia go to war. England and France go to war. And oh my goodness, would you look at that? 
the Seven Years' War kicks off in 1756. At the beginning, the war starts out going pretty well for France. A French Navy captain captures the Isle of Minorca from England, and this makes Jean look amazing because she was friendly with said captain, and she had been one of the strongest supporters of the war at the beginning. And hey, look at that. We're winning the war. However, soon after France captures Minorca, a man, Robert Damiens, tries to assassinate Louis XV via stabbing. The king ends up being completely fine from this assassination attempt. In fact, he thought he had just been elbowed really hard in the side, which, okay, Louis XV, like, good for you, but let's check out your pain levels to make sure you're not some sort of like weird robot man. And it turns out that Damien's, after being tortured and being forced to confess, had attempted the assassination because he felt like Louis was actively hurting the country and being misled by Madame de Pompadour, which suggests that maybe she is not as popular as they might want her to be. Around the same time that Louis gets stabbed, France and Austria sign yet another treaty promising to help each other in the fight against Prussia, which means that France now isn't just going to be fighting England in the colonies, but is also going to be fighting Prussia on the continent. And very quickly, fighting in these two different fronts becomes way too much for France to deal with. By 1759, France has to pull back on its continental obligations to deal with fighting England in India and the Americas. But that also doesn't go super well, and France ends up losing what control of India they had had, which honestly wasn't that much control because the East India Company was a thing. And once again, story for an entirely separate podcast, probably not mine, because uh, East India Company is gross and economical and also very genocidal, so I don't like talking about it. Also, France basically loses Canada. So, in short, the Seven Years' War hadn't gone extremely great for France, and Jean mostly gets blamed for this. People in France feel like Jean had caused the Austrian alliance, which had basically led to the war, which, as we've seen, had ended terribly. By the end of the Seven Years' War, the French court had started to run up some really huge debts. Part of that is because of the war. After all, war is hideously expensive. And then there's the fact that life at Versailles is extremely elaborate and not exactly cheap to maintain. Pretty soon, everyone is blaming Jean for all the expenses, even the ones that are caused by Louis personally, such as the fact that he keeps increasing the entertainment budget because he doesn't like being bored, so there have to be plays and fireworks at all times, so he's constantly entertained. But on the upside, it's after the Seven Years' War that June looks around and is like, hey, we need to improve our military. And one way to do that is to open some new and reformed military schools. And Jean does that. She starts a military school, the École Militaire, which ends up getting an amazing reputation. 
and which will train some really, really famous French generals, including one Napoleon Bonaparte. However, the however, the Seven Years' War and the resulting fallout does kind of break Jean, especially physically. By 1763, her health is on a major decline, and in 1764, she gets diagnosed with tuberculosis, which in the 18th century is a death sentence, and everyone knows it. Jean is dying, and there's nothing anyone can do to save her. Louis ends up caring for her himself, even though that's potentially dangerous for him because he could catch TB from her, but he loves her so much that he's willing to risk his life. Jean, the Madame de Pompadour, ends up dying on April 15, 1764, in Paris at the age of 43 from tuberculosis. She's buried in the Chapel of the Capuchins in Paris. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's quickly recap the life of Madame de Pompadour. Madame de Pompadour was born in 1721 in Paris. We aren't exactly sure who her biological father was. It might have been her mother's husband, but it also might have been a friend of her mother's husband, a wealthy tax collector. Either way, when she was only four years old, her mother's husband had to flee France after committing some possible fraud, and her entire family moved in with said tax collector. When she was nine, her mother heard from a fortune teller that little baby Madame de Pompadour, aka Jean, would one day win the heart of a king, and her mother decided that she was going to do whatever it took to ensure that happened, aka making sure that Jean had the finest possible education, because that's what you gotta do to make sure your daughter eventually becomes a king's mistress. When Jean was 19, she married the wealthy tax collector's nephew, and the two moved to an estate that also conveniently happened to be right next to Louis XV's favorite spot to go hunting. Jean spent the next few years entering Parisian salon society, where she got a reputation for being extremely smart and extremely witty. Word of her reputation spread to Versailles, and Louis XV became interested in a, in a clever woman who knew how to read. Ladies, this is why we pay attention in school. He soon invited Jean to watch him hunt from a distance, which was a big fucking deal for non-nobles in 18th century France. During the hunt, Jean remembered the words of the fortune teller and decided to ride out in front of the king, even though that was technically breaking the rules of etiquette. But Louis XV was impressed and gave her the romantic gift of a dead deer. A few months later, Louis invited Jean to a masked ball at Versailles and in the middle of the dance floor pulled off his mask and said, hey, you're hot, I want you to be my mistress. Okay, fine, he didn't literally say that, but you get the idea. A year later, after being given a noble title, so it was socially acceptable for her to be the king's mistress, Jean moved into Versailles and started living the good life. She did her best to befriend the king's wife, Marie, 
and his various children because she wasn't an idiot. She wanted some friends on the inside and started making a name for herself at court as a patron of the arts and a style icon. As Louis's mistress, Jean became a huge patron of the arts, as well as an engraver in her own right, and really changed French court culture. She was a huge fan of the French Enlightenment. She served as Voltaire's patron and defended the right of Denis Diderot to publish the Encyclopedia, as well as generally supporting the right of writers to publish their work, which would kind of come around to bite the French monarchy in the butt in 1789, but who's thinking that far ahead? However, in 1750, due to bad health, Jean stepped down from her mistressly duties and decided to just be friends with the king, aka help advise him on various political matters. By now, Jean had started to make a few enemies at court because a lot of the men felt like she had way too much influence for being a woman who wasn't of noble birth. By the mid-1750s, Jean began intervening a bit more in the political sphere. By the 1750s, due to the 1748 Treaty of Aix la chapelle France was locked in to an alliance with Prussia. But Louis XV wasn't personally the biggest fan of the Prussian king. Also, the Queen of Austria, Maria Theresa, who was quite a bitch in her own right, and I mean bitch in the most complimentary form possible, was really trying to dislodge said alliance. So she sent one of her diplomats to meet one-on-one -on -one with Jean to try to push Louis out of the alliance. And it worked. In what was known as the 1756 Reversal of Alliance, Louis revealed that he was ditching Prussia for Austria, and Prussia was like, okay, that's not a big deal, because we double-crossed you and signed on to be friends with your age-old enemy, England. And suddenly, we had a new set of friends, Austria and France against England and Prussia. The new set of allies swiftly went to war in the Seven Years' War, which went amazingly terribly for France. By the time the Seven Years' War was done, France lost most of their colonial holdings in North America, as well as losing control of any land they might have had in India to England. Jean was blamed for most of the Seven Years' War and its failures because she really was the one who had pushed Louis to embrace the Austrian alliance. Soon after the Seven Years' War wrapped up, in 1764, Jean died of tuberculosis at the age of 43. So, that is Jean, the Madame de Pompadour. For most of history, she hasn't been treated the best. She's sort of been portrayed as this, like, scheming, social climbing woman who was interfering in diplomacy where she had no right to. It's only more recently where she's gotten a more nuanced view, which I think she deserved. She really did pull herself up by the bootstraps, which is kind of a running theme with a lot of French mistresses. And yes, obviously the Seven Years' War did not go great, but that obviously was not solely her fault. There were larger forces at work. 
Most of my research for this episode came from Amanda Pearl's article on Madame de Pompadour, Susan Sandberg's article for NPR on Madame de Pompadour, Tess Lewis's article for the Hudson Review, Nancy Mitford's book on Madame de Pompadour, and David Mindersmith's book, Madame de Pompadour, Mistress of France. As always, I'll put up a complete list of sources, as well as relevant images, online at sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns about the study guide, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. Also, I know last week I said I was going to publish a tangent cast, and I didn't. I really apologize for that. I thought I was going to be able to, but then finals week happened and kind of kicked my butt vis-a-vis all the papers I had to write. So I put school first because master's degree is a thing that's happening. But I promise I will be posting a tangent cast this week. It's going to be about the artist Francois Boucher, who was a friend of both the Queen of France and Madame de Pompadour, who painted absolutely gorgeous paintings. I'm super excited for that. You can get the tangent cast if you're a member of the Patreon. And remember, you only have to donate at the $1 a month level to get access to the tangent cast. There are more details at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. And as always, if you want to chat to me on social media, I'm available on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod and on Instagram at sadgirlstudy. The best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please let me know how I'm doing. Read or review or else I'll be sad. Thanks.